Jeremiah chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bore them and their fathers who begot them in this land, They shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried, but they shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. For thus says the Lord, Do not enter the house of mourning, nor go to lament or bemoan them, for I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord, loving kindness and mercies. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried. Neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. Nor shall men break bread in mourning for them to comfort them for the dead. Nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother. Also, you shall not go into the house of feasting, no, to sit with them, to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And it shall be when you show this people all these words and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced this great disaster against us or what is our iniquity or what is our sin? That we have committed against the Lord our God. Then you shall say to them. Because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord. They've walked after other gods and have served them and worshipped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. And you've done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart. So that no one listens to me. Therefore, I will cast you out of the land, out of this land, into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers. And there you shall serve other gods day and night where I will not show you favor. Jeremiah begins sermon number seven. It begins here in chapter 16, verse one. It will continue to the end of the chapter and all of chapter 17, all the way to verse 27. And the theme, (laughs) the judgment of Judea, the judgment of Jerusalem, it's certain And now the Lord reveals to Jeremiah that extraordinary times are going to require an extraordinary lifestyle. He is commanded to live a life of spiritual separation and even of physical separation. He cannot marry. He cannot have children because Jeremiah is going to become a sort of living sign, a living symbol, a warning to the families of the nation. And in this chapter, Jeremiah is going to strike a balance between judgment and hope. The first 13 verses are a reflection on God's call on Jeremiah's life, a refrain from marrying. He is ordered, commanded by God to live a life of celibacy. Jeremiah's call becomes a picture for everyone living in Jerusalem and also Judea. It is followed by a promise. 
that the nation, even though they're going to be taken captive, they're going to return from the exile. And you can rest assured that when Daniel the prophet was reading these words of Jeremiah, he underlined, highlighted, and had exclamation points after verses 14 and 15. And then a warning is made that those who try to escape the judgment will be discovered by fishermen and hunters in verses 16 and 18. The warning is followed by hope that Israel's punishment will eventually bring about an incredible, dramatic conversion. The Gentile nations that don't know God will know God in verse 19, 20. And 21. So Jeremiah is forbidden from entering into the joys of human life and the joys of human sorrow. Why? Because this is a desperate time and it calls for desperate measures. A judgment is about to fall on Judea and Jerusalem. And so life can't go on the way it normally went on. The normal human Activities are about to come to an abrupt and a dramatic halt. Imagine you are living on the north east coast of Japan the day before the tsunami hit, and you had a week's notice that, hey, guess what? A gigantic tsunami is going to hit. Tens of thousands of people are going to be dead. All of this shoreline is going to collapse. Imagine you're living in the Indian Ocean on the eastern part of India, and you discover that. A tsunami is going to hit and 150,000 people are going to perish in a matter of seven minutes. Imagine you're living in New Orleans, Louisiana in 2005 and you understand that a hurricane is coming and it's a life-threatening hurricane that runs the risk of sinking the city and life as you understand it is about to end. Is it going to change your thinking? Is it going to change your living? Is it going to change your lifestyle? Our lifestyles tell us something about our relationship with the Lord. The way that you behave toward each other and the way that you behave in the community in which you live tells us something about yourself each and every day. The way you get up in the morning, the way you pray in the morning, the way you open up your Bible, the way that you conduct yourself and the activities that you choose to embrace and those things that you refrain from doing. Say something about your relationship with the Lord. How would you characterize your life? How would you characterize your access to God and your fellowship with God? How would you characterize your life as a whole? Righteous? Unrighteous? Obedient? Disobedient? In this chapter, it begins with a list of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's prohibitions. Look what it says. The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. Now, you have to understand something. Under most circumstances, marriage is the norm. It's normal. I call this the urge to merge. There is a reason why God made men and women the way that he made them. The Bible, under normal circumstances, says that therefore a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to the woman and the two shall become one. Most human beings have a keen sense of wanting to experience life and all that life has in fellowship and relationship with someone that they can love. And the prophet is forbidden the comfort and fellowship of marriage. And the message of Jeremiah and his repeated rejection I need to ask you something for those of you who have been with me teaching through this series of, in Jeremiah. And remember, he has this persistent message. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And do people accept him and believe him? What's the answer? No. Is he the most popular pastor in town? 
Does he have a gigantic radio and television ministry where tens of thousands of people flock to hear what he has to say, fall on their knees and repent in sackcloth and ashes? No. Do you think he's pretty lonely? Do you think he longs for human companionship and human relationship? I think the answer is yes. Most of us do. And so the commandment of God comes as somewhat of a shock and somewhat as a surprise because he really, really wants to have someone in his life. But he has an obligation to execute the task that has been given to him. He isn't going to have the privileges or the opportunities that are afforded in a normal life with being a normal husband and being a normal father. My friend H. Wayne House writes in a commentary, the New Illustrated Bible Commentary, he writes, quote, In the case of Jeremiah, the prohibition against marriage was both a sign to the nation and a blight on his name among the people. Celibacy was abnormal. Large families were indicative of God's blessing upon a household. Jeremiah faced life with God as his soul comfort and support, unquote. That's Jeremiah's calling. He has been called to depend upon the Lord, to obey the Lord, to submit to the Lord, to rely upon the Lord. When it says, you shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters. Note that expression in this place. It is a reference probably to Jerusalem and probably to Judea. The Lord doesn't allow Jeremiah to marry or have children. And he's going to give the reason. He's basically going to give him an opportunity that he wouldn't normally give to me. And he wouldn't normally give to you. He's going to unfold a future to Jeremiah. And he's going to give the reason. He's going to say, look, the reason why you can't have children is because if you did have children, they would die the most horrible death imaginable. Do you ever wish that you could peer into the future and you could see the consequences of the choices that you make? Do you remember before you met that man? Do you remember before you met that woman? Do you remember looking at him or her and thinking, I wonder what life is going to be like with him or her? And then all of a sudden a film starts to unroll and you begin to see one month into the relationship and one year into the relationship and one decade into the relationship. And you begin to see all of the peaks and valleys that take place and you go, stop the film. It would really have an effect on what you're about to do, wouldn't it? Jeremiah has been given a film. In verse 3, it says, For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bore them, and their fathers who begot them in this land, they shall die. Not just any death. Look what Jeremiah writes. They shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried, but they shall be like refuse. The word refuse means trash on the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword. That's the invading armies and by famine completely locked. They will be, have no access to food and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. I don't know if you've ever seen that kind of destruction. I don't know if you've ever seen that kind of death. Tragically, some of you have. Some of you have been in circumstances, whether in person or on film, where you see the piles of bodies in Auschwitz and Dachau. They're piled like mounds of human trash. I'll never forget the image that I saw in Rwanda as I saw bloated bodies floating down the stream and going over a cascading waterfall. Literally, the, the river was littered with bloated human carcasses. 
I saw images of men and women and children, their heads split open with machetes, arms and legs cut off, bodies piled high. And I thought to myself, how is it possible that the world is unaware that a genocide is taking place in Rwanda? Recently, over the stupid false prophecy of Harold Camping, about 5,000 5, Hmong villagers who had come into a relationship with the Lord and their only source of information about the outside world and Christianity was through shortwave radio. And they tragically heard the broadcast from Harold Camping that the end of the world was going to take place on May 21st. And they gathered together in places in North Vietnam And the North Vietnamese communist armies came in and slaughtered men, women, children, executing pastors. They'll die gruesome deaths, Jeremiah says. But this is the difference. They shall not be lamented. You know, when children died at Columbine, we had a community that could come together and support them. When 3,000 Americans died at 9-11, we had a nation that could come around and support them. When the hurricane hit in Louisiana, resources were stretched to the max. But what do you do? What do you do when there's no one to help? There's no resources whatsoever. Jeremiah will remain childless. And it becomes a picture of a future bereavement that will come upon this place. In other words, the Lord is saying there is rhyme and there is reason to what I'm asking you to do, Jeremiah, because the future is one that's filled with graphic horror and the death toll is going to be gruesome and overwhelming. Again. He reminds them that there's going to be no time to mourn. There will be no one left to mourn the dead or bury the dead. So he says, don't marry. And now he says, don't mourn. Look at verse five. For thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning, nor go to lament or bemoan them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord. Loving kindness has said, and mercies. So Jeremiah is told, don't marry and don't grieve. Why? Their doom is God's judgment. He's basically saying, I need you to understand something. Persistent, wicked rebellion Persistent and wicked disobedient has brought about this catastrophic judgment. Again, the word mourning is an interesting word in the Hebrew language. It means to make a shrill sound. It's translated in Amos chapter 6, verse 7, revelry. It, 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 was, it was the noise that you make when there's a party going on. It's those high-pitched squeals. The shrill can express unrestrained or uninhibited joy, but it can also express painful emotion. And so the Lord speaks to Jeremiah and he uses three words normally associated with grief. Mourning. Bemoan. Lament. And this is followed by three words normally associated with God's faithful care. Peace. Loving kindness. Mercies. I want you to look closely at that word Peace. It's maybe the most familiar word in all of the Hebrew language. Shalom. It means way more than just the absence of conflict. Or the, or, or the absence of pain or the absence of sorrow. It's a word that meant 
personal and political stability. In other words, it was a word peace that meant friendship with God. It it wasn't just the absence of conflict, but it was the presence of something vital and necessary. And when it comes to relationship with God, and that's why he says the loving kindness and the mercy. But look what it says. I have taken my peace away from this people. Why? Because there is no peace for a group of people who live in rebellion and constant disobedience against God. You know, if you find yourself in a place of agitation, if you find yourself in a place of constant conflict, if there is a conspicuous lack of joy, and if there is a conspicuous lack of peace in your life, it is okay for you to ask the question, why is this happening in my life? Why, why aren't I experiencing the peace of God and the joy of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life? Because guess what? As a Christian, your life was meant to be a life of peace. The peace of God and peace with God. And in verse 6, look what it says. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're famous or you're unknown. The judgment that's going to come upon the people is going to be throughout the city and throughout the land. And look what he says. They shall not be buried. Neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. And by the way, the practice of shaving one's head and the practice of going through this cutting process was absolutely forbidden by the law of Moses. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28, Leviticus chapter 21, verse 5, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, unlike the pagans, the children of Israel were not supposed to have expressions of mourning that mimicked, if you will, the pagan peoples that surrounded them. But the people in rebellion against God... And the people in rebellion against God's commandments and God's prohibitions, they did what you know people do. They just simply ignored what the Bible had to say. That might come as a shock and as a surprise to you, but it shouldn't look around you. Look at the world in which we live, even in popular Christianity. If you don't like what the Bible says, just pretend like it's not in there. Just pretend like the commandment or the prohibition doesn't exist. And in verse 7 it says, Nor shall men break bread in mourning for them to comfort them for the dead. Nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother. What he's basically saying is the normal rituals associated with mourning won't take place. If someone in your family dies, you usually can gather at a funeral home. There's usually a dinner. There's usually a way to express sorrow and to provide comfort. But what do you do when there's no place to go? When everybody's dead? What do you do when the tragedy is so overwhelming? The dead so many that the normal mechanisms of comfort and the normal mechanisms of consolation are gone. In the aftermath of tragedy, we can normally absorb the sorrow, but what the prophet is being told is that this devastating circumstance is going to be so bad and so overwhelming that everyone's mother, everyone's father, everyone's brother and sister who isn't taken captive is going to be affected by the tragedy. Jeremiah is forbidden to express Both sorrow and joy. And you might ask the question, well, why? Why? Doesn't the Bible say weep with those who weep? And doesn't the Bible say mourn with those who mourn? And under normal circumstances, that's exactly what you do. But Jeremiah is on the precipice of a catastrophe. And so... The Lord reminds him, soon, soon, both sorrow and joy will be gone 
Look what it says in verse 8. Also, don't marry. Don't mourn. And then there's a third thing. Don't mingle. In verse 8 it says, also you shall not go into the house of feasting. Excuse me. To sit with them. To eat and to drink. Don't marry. Don't mourn. Don't mingle. What's the Lord saying? That Jeremiah cannot eat or fellowship, if you will, with Judas people. As a matter of fact, when it says you shall not go into the house of feasting, the house of feasting is really kind of a reference to a banquet hall. If you've ever been invited to a wedding Typically, the wedding will take place in a large enough facility to handle all of your family, all of your friends, that there's a banqueting hall where you can dance and you can sing. It's a place where there can be festivities and singing. And Jeremiah is forbidden to participate in all meaningful family celebrations. Jeremiah is forbidden to weep with those who weep. He's forbidden to rejoice with those who rejoice. He's called to a life of separation. It's a radical separation that very few people will find themselves during the course of their life. W. Graham Scroge wrote, quote, the church of God needs to remember that fellowship with God sometimes necessitates separation from all who fail to fulfill the responsibilities of fellowship in the light. Paul was living at a very precarious time himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, remember he says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have in darkness? And sometimes Christians are called on to experience a radical separation. Remember in the New Testament... Paul writes and he says, look, when I wrote to you, I, I didn't say that you ha- that you have to separate from every unbeliever in order to separate from every unbeliever. You would have to literally leave the planet Earth. What he basically said was, guess what? You're living in a world where everything around you is putting pressure on you to think the way the world thinks, to speak the way the world speaks to communicate and to participate and to love everything that it loves. And all of a sudden the Lord shows up and the Lord says to you, you know what? I want you to be different. I want you to think differently and I want you to speak differently and I want you to act differently. I want you to live your life as if heaven is a real place. I want you to live your life as if the principles in the Bible are really true. And in verse 9, the Lord says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness. The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. Here's what the Lord is saying. Jeremiah, in your lifetime, life as you understand it, the world as you understand it, joy and sorrow as you understand it, normal living as you understand it is going to come to an abrupt halt. Is that true for you? Hopefully not. You know, I. I grew up in a world, and I know many of you who are at least somewhat, you know, thank you that I'm not the oldest person in the room, but those of you who grew up in the same time I grew up, in the late 50s and the early 60s, there was a time when we were shown films of nuclear catastrophes. And as little kids, we were shown films of a mushroom cloud, and then we were shown uh, films of kids hiding underneath their desk in case of a nuclear attack. And, you know, as little kids, we're thinking, oh, you mean by ducking under this desk and covering our heads that somehow that will make a nuclear attack survivable? You know, when you're in the second grade, you don't think about that. Even when you're in the third grade, you don't think about that. But by the fourth grade, you're starting to think about it. 
Is it possible that something could happen in the next week or the next month or the the next year that could radically, permanently, fundamentally change the way that you live? I think the answer is yes. You see, you may or may not believe that you're called to live a life of spiritual separation. But every once in a while, the Holy Spirit will penetrate through the darkness. The Holy Spirit will knock on the door of your heart. And the Holy Spirit will say to you, guess what? The Lord Jesus died for your sin and rose from the dead and were given both power and permission to live lives that are God honoring and God pleasing. We're not we're not to live our lives in selfishness or wickedness. We're not to break God's commandments. We're not to refuse the invitations of the Holy Spirit to cultivate our gift and manifest that gift. And we are to refuse the invitations and seductions of Satan and the flesh and the world. Genuine believers are to be separated from all sinful and evil associations. And so the prohibitions are given and now the permissions and the proclamations are given. Look at verse 10. It says, and it shall be. When you show this people all these words and they say to you, well, why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? And what is our iniquity or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Lord, what have we done? And every chapter, almost, the answer has been given. He says, hey, look, Jeremiah, when you're giving this message and the people begin to say to you, hey, wait a minute, I don't get it. I don't get it. Why are armies coming to invade us? Why is Judah and Jerusalem going to be destroyed? Why is this great judgment coming? Here's what Jeremiah can do. He can explain to them God's word. There's prohibitions that are given, but there's also permissions and proclamations. The explanation includes the reasons for the coming judgment. Hasn't anyone ever asked you, hey, do you believe that the world is going to come to a dramatic and an abrupt halt? Yeah. Do you believe that this world that you look around you and as you see, is this world going to last? What do you think the answer is? World won't last. Is a real Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the dead, is this real Jesus going to come from heaven and return to the earth? Do you realize that if you believe that a real Jesus is going to come from heaven and return to the earth, most people are going to think that you're nuts? I was listening to someone on the radio this morning talking to a friend of mine, and he had written a book about a presidential candidate. And as he went down the laundry list of why he thought that this person was a kook, he said, this person believes that literally Jesus will return from heaven and come to the earth and establish his kingdom. Can you believe someone like that is actually running for the president of the United States? And I thought, in a way, he's right. The vast majority of people are going to think this person is out of their mind. But guess what? That's exactly what the Bible teaches. That's exactly what the Bible says. That the world in which we're floating on right at this very moment is accumulating a debt. And that God is going to repay that debt. And in the book of Revelation, that debt is referred to as a cup of iniquity. And when the cup is full and it begins to overflow, then God's going to visit the planet. And so, Jeremiah is given both a description of their sin, and then he relates the depths of their sin. And the question, by the way, even as you look at verse 10, excuse me, why is all this happening What is our iniquity? What have we done in order to merit this kind of judgment? Do you understand that these questions reveal a shocking disregard for the Bible? 
Imagine for a person who says, you mean breaking the commandments is wrong? You mean lying, cheating, stealing, murdering? All... Who, who would have guessed that, such, that these things are bad things and these things are wrong things? Do you understand that the people of Judah and Jerusalem missed their very purpose for existence? The people of Israel were chosen to know and to love and to serve the Lord, to reveal his character, to reveal his goodness. And by the way, that's why you exist. That's what the Bible means when it says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed into the image of Jesus. You exist. And you've been saved and you've been redeemed and you've been reconciled to the Father for several purposes. One is to know and love God and to enjoy him forever. And another is so that you could reveal and to and, and to demonstrate to everyone around you that there's a real God and there's a real Jesus and that he's in the business of forgiving sins. And he's in, in the business of reconciling people back to himself. The people existed to know and glorify and reveal God's goodness and gracious character. But they wouldn't live that way. And in verse 11, it says, then you, this is what you shall say to them. Well, because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord. They have walked after other gods and have served them and worshipped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. And I know what you want to put in parentheses. And what's wrong with that? Because your fathers have forsaken me. Remember, God entered into a friendship and a fellowship with them. God redeemed them, reconciled them, if you will. He liberated them from the slavery and the bondage that was in Egypt. He miraculously set them free and then and then watched over them and provided for them through a series of wilderness wanderings and then placed them in a land. Because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord. They've walked after other gods. The people abandoned and forsook God. They embraced idolatry. They abandoned the law. They abandoned the commandments. They abandoned the covenants. They said, you know, it's really cool that we have this spiritual heritage. It's really great that hundreds of years ago, our ancestors lived in Egypt and God showed up and Moses led us out of the Egypt into the wilderness and then into the promised land. And it's great that we have these Passover feasts and it's great that we have these traditions. And it's great that our, our father David and his son Solomon built a temple and that we have all of these rituals and rites and, and we have all of these great traditions but you know what it really doesn't matter because we live in the real world and you see in the real world people know that Baal is in charge of the weather and that Ashtaroth is in charge of reproduction and see part of their worldview was they embraced the pagan system of thinking around them and they subjugated true biblical revelation to the philosophies of the people who are around them. Just like now. You know, it's really great you Christians go to church. It's really great that you open the Bible. It's really great that you read in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and... The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. It's really great that you read about the creation of Adam and Eve and this mystical garden and a talking snake and rebellion and disobedience. But that's probably not how it really happened. You see, mud became man through a series of evolutionary constructs. The Bible is an interesting story that has an explanation to a ancient people because they didn't understand scientific inquiry. You don't really believe that, right? You don't really believe that the Bible is true. And the moment you look a person in the eyes and you say, I believe the Bible is true, just like the way the Bible says that a real guy named Adam and a real woman named Eve really disobeyed God in a garden and that sin is the problem plaguing humanity and that the solution to that sin is a savior, people are going to write you off as a nutcase. And you know what? 
The same unsettling statement that the Lord makes to Jeremiah. How the people have forsaken God and they've forsaken the Bible and they've forsaken the instructions of God. There is something profoundly disturbing to me, and that is the church's departure from really believing the Bible and really believing and trusting in what it says. And then in verse 12, it says, and you've done worse than your fathers for behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. And it was bad what your fathers did, but guess what? Now you have exceeded them in wickedness. The people were guilty of persistent rebellion. And I want to draw your attention in verse 12, not only to it says, you've done worse than your fathers. Each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart. It becomes the mantra of today. That's not what I believe. That's not what my heart tells me. Did it ever occur to you? That a human heart dictating to you what you should and shouldn't believe might be giving you false information, especially if it's inconsistent with what the Bible says. And then it says at the very end, so that no one listens to me. Do you know it was the number one statement that every observant Jew was supposed to say in the morning, in the afternoon and in the evening? Shema Israel Eloheinu Echad. Shema. Do you know what the word Shema means? It means listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every observant Jew, the first thing on the list of the things to do was to listen. Shema Israel. Listen. Hear, O Israel. You know, it makes perfect sense to me that that's the number one thing on our to-do list. Is that what you do? You wake up in the morning and go, Lord, first thing on my list to do. I want to listen to what you have to say. I want to listen to what you have to say about my heart and about my circumstances and about my life. And look at the Lord's refrain. No one's listening. No one's listening. And then in verse 13 it says, Therefore I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers, and there you shall serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor. By the way, the word cast means throw or hurl. Therefore I will cast you out of this land. The picture is... A person jettisoning, hurling, tossing the God who hurls them from the land and into the exile. And the land that he's talking about is Babylon. Now the people are going to leave the promised land and they're going to reside in Babylon and they're going to call Babylon home. And by the way, in the Bible, Babylon becomes a type and a picture of the world. And so when he says, and there you shall serve other gods, one Bible writer it translates this, there you can serve the other gods all the time. It is, it's irony. The Lord is using irony. You want idolatry? I'm going to give you idolatry. You want human philosophy? I'm going to give you human philosophy. You want... To embrace idolatry and human philosophy and man-made religion. Guess what? You're going to get to eat, drink, and sleep it 24-7. In the life of Israel. Presence in the land. Large families. Freedom and prosperity. That was the signs of blessing. And now they're going to have exactly the opposite. No family, no land, no freedom, no prosperity. And in verse 14, it says, therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said. The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But 
The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he has driven them. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers. I can guarantee you that when Daniel read verse 14 and 15, when he was in Babylon, that he wept, that he began to cry. And he would have began to sob because he sees in verses 14 and 15 a word of encouragement. And you talk about the prohibition, but now you talk about the permission because now Jeremiah has the privilege of explaining God's word, but also encouraging God's people one day, one day in spite of this judgment, one day in spite of this this estrangement, one day in spite of all of the consequences of the wickedness that has been brought upon the nation, God's going to bring the people back. And the reason why God's going to bring the people back into the land, because he has unfinished business and promises that he's made that he must keep. And you know what the promise is? The promise is a Messiah. A Messiah is going to be born and a Messiah is going to live and a Messiah is going to to die on a cross and rise from the dead. And so in verse 14 and 15, once again, the Holy Spirit, by the power of his majesty, declares God's encouragement. That even in the midst of judgment, there is a promise. And even in the midst of judgment, there is a fulfillment that God's promises are going to come true. And you have to understand something that's also true about your life. That no matter how wicked, no matter how rebellious, no matter how sinful, no matter how stupid, no matter how inconsistent you've been, God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And all of the things that are happening to you, God is constantly trying to shake you up and get you back on the right track. Well, I've made some mistakes. Yeah, you could say that. Mistake is kind of a calm word. It's very hard for us to use the right terms. In wickedness and disobedience, I've done exactly the opposite of what God wanted me to do. Do you realize that that's the first step in the right direction? The Bible says if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God just simply wants you to come to grips and see your circumstance the way that he sees it. So that he can provide for you all that's necessary for you. Jeremiah is explaining God's word, but he's encouraging God's people. He promises a time of future restoration that will exceed the deliverance from Egypt. Oh, you thought it was cool when God used Moses to part the Red Sea and bring the people out of bondage. Wait till you see what God is does to a nation that looks like they had no hope whatsoever. The Lord promises a future time of restoration that will exceed the glorious deliverance. There are promises. And look what it says in verse 16. Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they they shall fish them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. What is he saying? He's talking about a future army that comes into the land, because even as people are speaking, even as Jeremiah is giving the message, these people are thinking guns, gold and grocery thoughts. Isn't there a place in Idaho I can go? Is there some place where I can run and hide and escape the judgment? You know, in the off chance that the Babylonian army does come, isn't there a hole that I can hide in? Isn't there a mountain I can go to? Isn't there a country that I can escape to? And the Lord uses the metaphor of fishermen and hunters that these Babylonian army men will beat the bushes and search the, the, the caves and will will literally scour the countryside. For all of the people who have tried to escape the catastrophe. The metaphor is used again in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 13, and in Amos chapter 4, verse 2. But think about that for just a moment, because there are those people living in our 
entire world who, when they hear that Jesus Christ is coming back and that a real God is going to return to the earth and that a real Jesus is going to judge everyone on the planet, there are people who think, no, I'll find a place to hide. I will find a place where God's scrutiny won't find me. And for the people of Jerusalem and Judea who are thinking, you know what, I know Jeremiah is saying these things, but I'm going to find a way to escape. The Lord says, no, you won't escape. Because I am going to make the army of Babylon agents of justice. And then in verse 17, look what it says. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. God doesn't really see what I'm doing. No, my eyes are on all their ways. God doesn't really notice what's happening. They are not hidden from my face. You know, God doesn't really care about my sin, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. Well, maybe if we wait long enough, God will just forget about it. No. Verse 18, and first I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin because they've defiled my land. They've defiled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. By the way, the consequences of idolatry are severe. The idolatry has brought the judgment. And so in what way did the people defile the land? By establishing cultic worship centers, which Jeremiah refers to as the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. I think that the reference is either to the idols that they would prop up and worship, or it may be a reference to the sacrifices that they would make. The cows, the sheep, the goats, and eventually during the most wicked times, the sacrifice of their own children. And what it did is it didn't just pollute the souls of the people by establishing the cultic worship centers. The word defile, by the way, means to make unclean. And it can speak of moral uncleanness. It can speak of physical uncleanness. It can speak of spiritual uncleanness, depending on the context. But here the context seems to apply to all of it. That the persistent, wicked rebellion had rendered everyone and everything contaminated. And that's what sin does. It defiles and contaminates and ruins and destroys. And in verse 19, look what it says. O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction. Remember, there are certain things that Jeremiah can't do, but there are certain things that Jeremiah can do. Jeremiah can explain the word of God. Jeremiah can encourage the people. And Jeremiah can pray. And he does. He cries out to God. Oh, Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction. The Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness and unprofitable things. He's proclaiming a message of hope. This prayer and this message, he's. He speaks of the Lord as being the source of strength, a fortress and a refuge. By the way, strength and fortress are words that are related to one another in the Hebrew language. Utsi, Uma, Utsi. The Lord is the strength and the fortress. And remember, a refuge is the place where you run to in times of danger. And Jeremiah knew that the only safe place in the storm is with the Lord. And because he speaks concerning the promise that the people will return, that God is going to fulfill the promises of a, of a Messiah. The Messiah is not only going to save the Jews, but the Messiah is going to save the Gentiles. 
And a little piece of the future is ripped wide open. And Jeremiah, by the power of the Holy Spirit, sees the Messiah. And the nations begin to know him and to love him and to accept him. He predicts the nations will come to the Lord and voices the psalm that they will sing. Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness and unprofitable things. In other words, our pagan practices were wrong. Our philosophies were wrong. Our worldview is wrong. We were told that there is no God, but there is a God. We're told that there is no Messiah, but there is a Messiah. We're told that sin isn't real, but sin is real. We're told that there is no such thing as a Savior, but there really is a Savior. We were told that judgment is a fiction. And we were told lies. Judgment is real. Heaven is real. Hell is real. And then Jeremiah says in verse 20, will a man make small G-O-D-S for himself, which are not gods? Indeed, will human beings fabricate gods which are not gods? Every person does it every day. Every person almost invariably does it every day when they begin to think in terms of God being something other than what he himself has revealed about himself. If you picture a God other than the God of the Bible, if you picture a God different from the God that is represented in the person of Jesus Christ, if you picture a God who is whose character is different from the one in the Bible, whose righteousness is different from the one in the Bible, whose judgment is different from the one in the Bible, whose promises are different from the one in the Bible, whose future as it's outlined is different from the one in the Bible, then you fabricated a false God. And in verse 21, it says, therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. In this passage, this one seems to indicate the specific disaster. And by the way, those of you who are familiar with the Bible and with history know, does the Babylonian army come in? Do they destroy Judah and Jerusalem? Is it awful? Is it horrible? Is it catastrophic? And are the children taken away in chains, the ones who survive? And will they make their way in Babylon? And will they spend 70 long years, day after day and night after night and week after week and month after month and year after year. They see the pagan temples. They see the pagan gods. They see the pagan sacrifices. They're immersed in the pagan system. And whatever else the captivity does, it cures and cleanses them from idolatry forever And when they return to the land, idolatry will never be a problem ever again. Sometimes God will have to put you in a pressure situation. And in that catastrophe, the cleansing will provide in part a cure for persistent rebellion. In this passage, that term, this once, seems to indicate that specific disaster. Again, my friend H. Wayne House, in his commentary, the New Illustrated Bible, writes, quote, The message of the collected oracles of chapter 16 is the revelation of the will and the work of God. He will personally cause the people to know him. And then enter into an intimate relationship with him. By the way, look what it says at the end of verse 21. And they shall know that my name is the Lord. You see, when the Bible speaks of knowing his name, it means to understand his nature. 
and his ways. In other words, the idea of knowing the name of God speaks to the attributes of God and the character of God. You know, this is one of the reasons why the name of Jesus is such a wonderful name. It means that the Lord will save. Remember, prophetically, he's called Emmanuel, God with us. Prophetically, we're told that he will forgive and redeem and reconcile. And the rabbi Paul will say, that's the reason why there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. There's forgiveness. There's redemption. There's reconciliation. You might read this passage and think that the Christian life is an endless series of things that you can do and things that you can't do. And there's a certain element of truth. When you become a Christian, there are certain things that you should never, ever, ever do ever again. But the Bible says, even if we do, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even Christians can sometimes hold out hope that somehow they can walk with God but not maintain truth and not practice spiritual disciplines and not practice spiritual separation, but in the end it will catch up with you. Because that's not who you are and that's not what you were called to do. You were never saved in order to just simply be happy. You were saved so that you could know God. And so that you could walk with Him. And love Him. And honor Him. George MacDonald said, No indulgence of passion destroys the spiritual nature so much as respectable selfishness. And we are selfish. Teddy Roosevelt made the observation, the things that will destroy America are peace at any price, prosperity at any cost, safety first instead of duty, the love of soft living, and the getting rich quick theory of life. You know, when I reread that, I thought about the church. Is the church so different? What happens when Christians long for peace at any price? A false gospel of prosperity at any cost and safety first rather than witnessing to the truth. And have we become a people who loves soft living and is afraid that somehow discipline or deprivation will make us Less spiritual. Jeremiah was called to live a lifestyle of spiritual separation. But he was also called to deliver a message of explanation and encouragement. You know, it becomes a, a real picture for us. We will sometimes be called to a lifestyle of separation. But we're also called to deliver a message of explanation and encouragement, and maybe from time to time, a real prophetic insight. As you speak to your moms and your dads and your brothers and your sisters, and you say to them, Are you satisfied with your life the way that it is? Are you satisfied with your spiritual circumstances? Are you willing to truly reflect what God's calling you to be. Men and women, not who are selfish, but who are selfless. We're going to have communion in just a moment. But what I want you to do is to prepare your hearts. We're going to all participate together. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Just hold the elements of communion until we all have an opportunity to partake together. But this is a time of self-examination. You know, Paul wrote and he said, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. He didn't say examine your neighbor. 
Don't examine the person in front of you and back of you or to your side. You examine your own heart. Examine your heart and ask yourself this question. How would I characterize my relationship with Jesus? How would I characterize my life? Is it one of righteousness or unrighteousness? Is it one of selflessness or selfishness? Is it one of honoring God or dishonoring God? You know, if the answers are all bad, guess what? We have a wonderful, wonderful Savior who's more than happy to wash you, cleanse you, forgive you, restore you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we know that Jeremiah's messages are very, very hard. And Lord, we know that he's been given instructions to live a life of separation. And Lord, we know that's hard. There's so much pressure to be like everybody else. But Lord, we want to be only like one single person. Like Jesus. Lord, we recall the words of the apostle who said, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed into the image of his son. Lord, we know that there is a terrific process that's taking place in each and every one of our hearts. As you're trying to make us more and more like our Savior, molding us, shaping us getting rid of the things that we don't really need and then adding all of the things that are going to be necessary for a life of humility and joy and peace. And so, Lord, I pray for that person whose heart is empty. I pray that you would fill it for the person whose heart is guilty. Lord, I pray that you would forgive them. And for the person who has a conspicuous lack of joy and a conspicuous lack of peace. Lord, I pray that the peace of God and the joy of Jesus would invade their heart as they realize that redemption and reconciliation are forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay.